being open to reception, open to receptive to, that's what I'm looking for. See, it's so hard for me to do. I, I can't even get the words out. To be receptive to instruction or rebuke or feedback. And our assignment for this week was to go out and try to find someone to whom you could ask for some feedback and say, tell me how I could do such and so better. Or what do you see in me that uh, might work better? I, um, I, I was in a conversation with one of my colleagues and there was a mention of some, some other people that had a, a character trait that my colleague found bothersome. And I thought that might be one of mine. <laughs> and, uh, and I found myself able to say, seriously now tell me, am I that way? Do I do that? And the colleague said, well, there are times when you do this, and there's some good things about that, but at the same time, it does sometimes do this. And uh, that was good for me to be able to hear. So let's do this. We'll do a, our think, pair, share. So uh, find someone to talk to, hopefully that's not your spouse. And uh, talk if if you did the experiment this week, or if you can think of some ex uh, occasion like this that you had somewhat recently, uh, share. So we're not only going to take about sixty seconds. So each of you have about thirty seconds to share some episode recently that you might have done. Okay, everybody got your identified who you're going to talk to. All right, go. <laughs> Be brave, be courageous, share a bit. Relationship is 
so key to how it affects you and how you yeah. receive it and what you do with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Helpful. Somebody else? Yeah. Okay. Years ago, I would go in the office early and uh, I mean real early. The one one uh, day I go in and about uh, 6:30 or 7, Sue calls and she has some unsolicited feedback, not even feedback. Uh, she was telling me, I, she said, I think you should do sickness sites about sickness sites. And I turned red from the toes to the top of my head. And by that point, I had uh, come to realize that sometimes when I say what I'm thinking <coughs> in the moment, that I later have to go back and apologize. So I quickly paused and said, oh God, please help me say what I should say, not what I'm feeling. <coughs> and on that morning, what came out was something I hadn't thought of. And I said, well, Sue, there's never anything wrong with doing what you suggested, which is not what I was feeling. <laughs> and so what happened was that 10 days later, I did do what she suggested. And then I went back to her friend. I had like a one instance, but I can think of sort of a principle of when I have criticism from somebody in a relationship that when I'm in an unhealthy place, I'll tend to chain that one criticism to the entire relationship. Do that thing, that chaining thing, where you think if this one thing is wrong, you go all the way up the chain <laughs> and make it the whole relationship is wrong. When it can really just be that one one thing that they're talking about, and it doesn't ruin the whole thing. Like there's yeah. an insecurity when you have that criticism, but you just got to step back and think rather than just feel about it. Yeah, yeah, that's very helpful. I have that tendency as well. So yeah, thank you. Another. Okay, <laughs> I've already said this to Lee, but I will share it. Um, I live here with my daughter and son-in-law and their family. Well, the, the family, the children are gone, either in school or working. And um, I have my own separate place. Well, we are moving in a few weeks, and I've been thinking and praying for a couple of weeks about choosing a time that I could ask them for feedback. Uh, because I found that if I wait until I do something that really bothers me, it's hard to have a good conversation. So I thought I would probably do this ahead of time. And they did have, uh, I, they told me several times, you know, don't bother me on Saturday morning. This is my only morning when I have time, that sort of thing. We just set some boundaries. And 
and um, they were all, we were all in a good humor, relaxed, and it was such a productive time together, and I know that it's going to contribute to uh, more harmony in our family, and I'm just praising God for that. But I told Lee, he set me up for, <laughs> to get encouraged to do that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for sharing. I do think in so much of uh, use the word courage, Sue, and I think that so often um, courage is well, and it's why it's why why uh, both Aquinas and Aristotle called courage one of the four cardinal virtues. You know, it, it's one of the four, like cardinal, like cardinal directions: north, south, east, west. It's the uh, it's primary, and apart from courage, most of this other stuff doesn't work very well, right? And uh, the virtues are always overlapping, and our practices always overlap. And as we grow in courage, that grows us in the capacity to hear feedback, to ask for feedback, to take criticism, to take instruction, to live. And uh, so, yeah, that courage is a beautiful and very obviously, by very definition, hard, right? All right, well, thank you to those of you who shared. I appreciate that. Um, For um, this week, we're not, you won't need it yet, but if I could get two people to pass out, maybe one on each side, a sheet of paper. And we may need to, uh, if you don't have enough, we may need to uh, let people tear sheets of paper and share a little bit. This morning, I want to, um, I want to talk about the practice of, uh, of praying praying for enemies. And, and let me set that, that context up this way. First, I want, to, I want to think about the Sermon on the Mount just a little bit. And I, because I um, am in, came off a week of teaching grad school stuff, I'm going to do a little excursus on the Sermon on the Mount that will be a little didactic, but I, think, I hope you'll find it really interesting. And then I want to come back around to the practice of praying, and especially praying for enemies. But I've been suggesting, Laura and I have been suggesting this term um, that one way in which some people think about the Sermon on the Mount is as wisdom literature. And remember, with wisdom literature, you have this sort of, these are practices that you try, and these are things that you do, and you have to work at it, and you have to experiment with it, and try these things in different sort of ways, rather than thinking them as always um, non-exceptional rules, like as we saw, answer a fool according to his folly and he will be uh, wise in his own eyes. And then the very next verse, do answer a fool in his folly. Um, Else I can't remember the rest of the verse, but right there next to each other, sometimes you answer the fool, sometimes you don't. Well, how do you know? Well, you got to figure it out, right? Um, It's the same way with when Aristotle says a virtuous human being will be angry at the right time about the right thing in the right way with the right intensity for the right term. It's like, well, thanks, you know, brilliant, that's very helpful. <laughs> but actually it is, right? It is because he reminds us this is an ongoing process of having to learn how to do this well. And it's only being schooled within a community of people who are working at this stuff that we can learn how to do that kind of stuff, right? So, so some have been looking, thinking about the Sermon on the Mount in that way, but before we get to thinking about the Sermon on the Mount that way, I want to, I want to share with you quickly... Um, Two other ways that you, that you probably want to be familiar with. 
We've got a lot of lifelong Christians in here, and it's, it's, it's really good sometimes to know a little history of interpretation. Okay, so I'll introduce you to a little bit of that real quick. If you go back to um, Augustine in the 4th, 5th century, and then fast forward to Martin Luther in the 16th century, the great Protestant reformer, the father of the Protestant Reformation, he thought of the Sermon, sermon on the Mount this way. Um, said, if you, um, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, And when he says, for example, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, pray for them, um, he said that is a definition of what should define your personal relationships and your inner spirit. So if, if uh, Bill Harlan and I have a falling out about some personal matter, then the Sermon on the Mount calls me to love Bill regardless of the fact that there's tension between us. Right? And Luther says it's a very personal, spiritual thing to love the enemy. He said, on the other hand, if you were out in the so-called secular world, don't read the Sermon on the Mount, he says. As a matter of fact, he's got this essay that's entitled On the Sermon on the Mount, and there he says, if you are a lord, or a judge, or a lady, he said, you do not have to consult Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, instead, consult the job, and the job will soon tell you what you should do as their superior. So in the secular realm, he has what he calls, what, what the uh, scholarship calls an ethic of vocation. So that works like this. Let's say, for example, that um, Bill this time has violated some law that happens to be a capital punishment. And let's say that I happen to be the executioner in the town. Well, as an executioner in the secular order, according to Luther, what I need to do is love Bill in my heart, but when it comes time for the execution, I'll lay his head back on the block and pull out the sword, and while I'm loving him, I'll cut his head off. Okay, so this is Luther. That the Sermon on the Mount is at the personal spiritual realm, <coughs> but not at the so-called secular realm. The ethic of vocation, the job manual, in other words, will tell you what you should do. Everybody with me so far? Now, also in the 16th century, there were, uh, there were other people called the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists, um, they're called Anabaptists because that Anna means again, and Baptist, baptizing. <coughs> and the Anabaptists were people who in the midst of the Protestant Reformation, like the Protestant Reformers, were saying we, we should go back and kind of restore, reform Christianity. And so the one good example to kind of help you think through what they're doing and the contrast between mainline Protestantism and the Anabaptists goes, goes something like this. That uh, Huldrych Zwingli, who was one of the famous mainline Protestant reformers, he was, like, he was kind of like a Church of Christ person on steroids. In that, whatever he would look at, you know, if it wasn't in the Bible, he would say, let's get rid of it. So he's this priest, he's become a Protestant reformer, and if it's not in the Bible, he says, we throw it out. 
right? Even, even as much as this. Uh, so if there, there's paintings on the walls in the church, and so they come in there with a big bucket of paint, and they whitewash the walls. Ooh, they do. You know, we can't have stuff like that on the walls. Uh, and with regard to music, uh, you know what that Ephesians text says? What's it say? Sing and make melody in your hearts unto the Lord. Doesn't say anything about play, right? But Zwingli was much better than that. Zwingli says, it says, sing and make melody in your heart. Not with your voice. So we will not have singing in church anymore. Zwingli. Well, there were some people there in, in his area that went to Zwingli and they said, hey, um, you know, it doesn't seem that you could make an argument for infant baptism based upon the New Testament. So what would you think Zwingli would say? He agreed. Well, what do you think he would say then? No more infant baptism. No you might know what he does say. He says, on this matter, we will consult the city council. Now why? Why is baptism different, you think? Well, baptism was different because baptism, especially the practice of infant baptism, was at the heart of having a Christian society. Well, in other words, when you practice infant baptism and the city council is Christian and the city council is deciding, for example, in Calvin's Geneva, they have a city council and they're watching over all things church and state. Even though they're not Catholic anymore, they're still concerned about the community being Christian and so, for example, in Calvin's Geneva, you can be called up for card playing during the week. You can be called up for not going to church and fined for that. Or if you have some sort of heretical teaching about the, 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 the nature of Christ, in one case, they executed a man in a very vicious way because he didn't have what they saw as orthodox understanding of the nature of Christ. So they have a Christian society. And one of the ways that's propagated is by the practice of infant baptism. You want everybody Christian? Well, you practice infant baptism, right? So with Zwingli, these guys come to him and they say, you can't, you can't legitimate infant baptism based upon the New Testament. And he says, well, we'll consult the city council. Because to start practicing adult believer baptism, which is something in our heritage, was at the heart of the downfall of a Christian society. Are you following the logic? Is making sense? So Zwingli and the city council say, no, we're not going that, that route. We're going to continue to practice baptism. The Anabaptists, on the other hand, they said, well, we're going to do what the New Testament says, and we're going to start practicing adult believer baptism. And their enemies therefore called them Anabaptists. You're baptizing again. So they would take people who had been baptized as babies, they'd take them down to the river, and they would baptize them, and then um, they would then, in turn, begin to be hunted down, arrested, and executed mercilessly because they were seen as threatening a Christian society. And there's lots of ironies in that, right? <laughs> Just note the ironies. And be mindful of the ironies when we throw around language like the downfall of Christian civilization, okay? But here's one of the things that the Anabaptists said in response to Luther. So the, the Anabaptist said, the Sermon on the Mount 
is not one of those things that's just for personal relationships. The Sermon on the Mount is not one of those things that's just about your inner heart and your inner spirit. The Sermon on the Mount, they said, is about what it means to be the people of God. And Jesus doesn't say, this is kind of, I'm now, I'm on a jazz riff about this rather than what they actually say. But basically what they are saying is, you know, Jesus doesn't come in Matthew 4 and say, repent, I give you a new personal ethic. He says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. Believe the good news. And this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And he describes it. So what the Anabaptists say is that the Sermon on the Mount is a, is, a, is a picture of what it means to be the people of God. And that this is what we are called to be and to do in every facet of our life. Not just in our personal relationships, not just in our spirit, but when we're out, so-called out in the world and in whatever place in which we find ourselves. And um, as I said, they were persecuted uh, rather mercilessly for holding to this. So, two very different conceptions of what it means to practice the Sermon on the Mount. There are others who have suggested kind of... So, so here you can at least take several different directions, right? So if you do believe that the Sermon on the Mount is something that we're, we're called to participate in in all, of our, all aspects of our life, um, there's always the danger of going yet to more legalism even with the Sermon on the Mount. You know, we, we, good, we good religious people can take any good thing and turn it into something that's a form of bondage. And plenty have, that's been done plenty of times with the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Um, I have a, a dear colleague who taught at um, Messiah College for some years. And he's from Churches of Christ, had done a lot of his career at ACU and Pepperdine, and then last 10 years or so he was at Messiah and they have a lot of kind of holiness slash Anabaptist tradition there at Messiah College. And he said that uh, one time he had this student who um, had, was not raised in a Christian home and then had found a Church of Christ and had become a Christian, but began to feel very, very guilty and fearful that they might go to hell if they didn't do church just right. If they were worshiped with instruments, afraid they were going to go to hell. So they got tired of that guilt and then they went over to a, uh, to a Mennonite church. And over in the Mennonite church, they began to pray they're going to go to hell if they had braces on their teeth. So it's like, you know, we can screw up any good thing, right? Um, but nonetheless, here the Anabaptists at least are saying, um, take it seriously. Well, there are other ways to take it seriously than just a legalistic reading. And one of the ways, I think, to take an interesting that some people are doing these days is they're saying, think of this as a set of practices that require discernment, that require work to learn to do these things well. So you know how we've got the, 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 the tension in the Proverbs, answer a fool, don't answer a fool. Like even in the Sermon on the Mount, can anybody think of an immediate tension in the Sermon on the Mount that you get like that? It's not an outright contradiction, maybe. He says, uh, Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that others may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What's he say a chapter later? Pray in secret. Pray in secret. Don't pray in public. Do not let others see your good deeds. Do not fast in public. 
if you do that to be seen by men, then you have no reward. Well, Lord, which one is it? Right? And I think that's another good, in, another good invitation to, well, we've got we to work at this to figure out when am I letting others see my good deeds and putting my, my candle on the lampstand, and when do I need to be very, very careful about being very secret and not being public in this regard. So, some are suggesting then that you think about the Sermon on the Mount, that we think about the Sermon on the Mount as a set of practices. And this opens up a lot of fascinating ways to read the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I don't know, still, even though I was introduced to this quite a number of years ago, I find this reading I'm about to introduce to you really compelling, though I'm not necessarily yet convinced, but I really like, find it really interesting, very fascinating. Some would suggest, for example, that what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount is he's taking common possibilities of response and giving us a third way. So, think about enemies, right? Um, what are the two kind of deeply wired responses in us in situations of conflict? Fight or flight, right? And this is deeply in our brainstem, you know, we either get it by God's direct creation or we get it through survival of the fittest through, through the process of evolutionary uh, development. Fight or flight keeps us alive. And some are suggesting, you know, one of the ways to think about what Jesus is doing is he's giving us an alternative to fight or flight. So, for example, um, Jesus says, first of all, let me back up a second. What's the socio-political context at the time of the Sermon on the Mount? Pardon? Oppression. oppression, exactly. So we have the oppression of the Roman Empire, right? And if we ever read the New Testament by forgetting this is an oppressed people, then we're forgetting a major, major part of what's going on in the New Testament. Right? So at the beginning of the book of Matthew, for example, what's, what happens to Harold G., other than the Christmas story stuff, what's the other major socio-political event that Matthew tells at the beginning of the story? The slaughter of the innocents, right? This is not a sweet story. It's a story of oppression. And so when Jesus says, love your enemies, they have very real enemies that they despise and wish would go to hell. And they have good reason to wish they would go to hell. In ways that we don't, typically. So... Jesus is speaking into this context and there are those there who want to raise up revolutionary violence and have good reason for it. Um, and, and, he, and he begins to speak to them about this no, crazy notion of loving of enemies. And then he says things like, um, if anyone demands that you go within one mile Go with them too. Now, there's lots of ways you can read that. Or Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the one cheek, turn to him the other also. Lots of ways you can read that. One of the common ways to read that is what is, is called kind of the Casper milk toast kind of thing. It's like, oh, you slapped me, oh, okay. Slap me again. <laughs> I'm just a... I'm, Jesus is telling us just to be doormats. And if we're a doormat type, 
then we kind of like that and tell everybody else they should be doormats. And if we sure as heck are not going to be doormats, we make it clear how unrealistic and idealistic and utopian and unrealistic Jesus is and then find ways to explain it away. Well, others will say, no, there's something different going on here. That instead, um, one of the ways to read it is to pay attention to the power dynamics that are at work in a slap. So, for example, Bill, you've worked very well today so far. Would you come and let me... Uh, <laughs> let us imagine that uh, Bill is a... Let's see, why don't you stand here? <laughs> that, that full visual. Full visual effect, slap, yeah. yeah. That, uh, that Bill is a peasant and I am a landowner. So I have the power in the situation, or imagine that I'm a Roman and he's a mere Jew. Um, you may be surprised to know, to learn, that there were laws about slaps. And when a slap typically occurred between someone who was higher than the other, it was the backhanded slap to demean. So I slap, and by doing so, I have said, I am the landowner, and you are a piece of crap. Peasant, don't mess with me. All right? And he's left with nothing to do but to put up with it. To be demeaned in the power structure. But let us imagine that Bill takes Jesus seriously and turns the other cheek. So give me now your left cheek. <laughs> so now I have his left cheek at hand. Um, one does not use the left hand in the ancient Near Eastern society because this was the hand that was unclean. This is the hand that's used to clean oneself after defecation. The left hand is not used. That's out of the question. That's in my pocket. I'm left with my right hand. I now have two options. How are the two ways I can hit him? Open-handed slap, whack, or fist. Here's, here's the fascinating thing about that. There are rules against open-handed slaps. And I, even if I am a landowner, can be fined. It's not something that was tolerated. I don't understand that, but it wasn't. So if I open-handed slap him, Bill's just put me in a situation of, I can get fined, but I've got the fist. So I can haul off and hit him with my fist. Anybody know the social meaning of the fist? What's happened all of a sudden is that I have now granted to Bill that he and I are equals because equals fight with fists. And by a very simple little turning of the cheek, Jesus has given a third way between fight or flight. He's not going to run, he's going to stand his ground, and he's not going to lay down and say, that's right, big man, you're the big man, and I'm just the peasant. He's just saying, and now it's like, oh, what just happened? Thank you. You're welcome. Um, come on. <laughs> Uh, here's another kind of reading of one of these. Uh, and again, I'll, I readily confess I'm not so sure about some of this interpretation, but I'm telling you what, the way people think about some of this. If you look at Luke's reading 
of the cloak passage. There, there Jesus says, if anyone takes your cloak, give them your what also? In, in, in Luke, he says your shirt also. Well, the way some people will read this is they'll say the cloak. Any, any, of, our, any of our bankers in here know what the cloak was? What the cloak was for in that context? A pledge. It was a pledge for a debt. So if, if, you had a, if I had to borrow money from Scott, then Scott would say, that's fine, just give me some surety on it. And the common surety was my overcoat, my cloak, as a peasant. So I give him my cloak. And he was required by law to let me have that back at night because that's what I would sleep in, like my sleeping bag, my bed. And then the next morning, he gets the surety again. So here, they suggest that one of the ways to read Luke 6 is if anyone demands your cloak, that's when he's calling the loan. And he said, I want the cloak now. You're not paying the loan, I want the cloak. And Jesus, they suggest, has this picture of here you are in court before the public square, and Scott's called the loan and says, give me the cloak, period. You're not getting it back. And Jesus says, just give him your shirt, too. Now, I'm not going to do that because it would be too embarrassing in our context for me to take my shirt off in here. But we are, a, we are an immodest culture compared to the ancient Near East. So as embarrassing as it would be for me in this context to pull my shirt off, multiply that many times for the sort of embarrassment that would have occurred in the ancient Near Eastern context. And it's like Jesus is saying, tell them, don't you see what you... You're taking the shirts right off our back. Your mechanisms of power and your mechanisms of wealth and your mechanisms of loan and the way you use the court system to oppress peasant people. Isn't that fascinating? So neither fight nor flight, but a creative third solution. And I do love that way of thinking about what the Sermon on the Mount may be about. And it takes lots of creativity. It takes lots of uh, hard work. It takes lots of courage. A lot of fascinating stuff. Well, here's... Um, Here's the thing I want to uh, suggest that we think about this week. Um, I, want you, I want you to think about, I'm going to kind of give you two practical exercises to think about. One is that if you are in a situation in which you feel like you're being put into a no-win situation, where that kind of fight or flight stuff is coming up in you, to spend some time thinking about is there a third way that does not do to them what they've done to me, but also refuses to be a doormat? And also says, I'm going to find a way to communicate. There's other realities here. There's other realities here. You see what I'm saying? Now, that is going to take you a good bit of work, perhaps, to, to think about and to try. The second one kind of thing I want to suggest to you, is everybody have a piece of paper? Anybody, anybody else need a piece of paper? How many people need a writing utensil? Bill, you might pass that writing You can pass out this side. If you will, get these writing utensils back to the basket up here when you're done, because these belong to Eric. Oh, uh, Eric, um... Uh, pencils, pens?
Okay, here, here's the assignment. You got three minutes to do this uh, in silence. Uh, I would like for you to write down uh, if if you if you were to allow yourself honestly to pray to God for anything. A lot of us learn don't pray for yourself and don't pray to ask God to give you things. Um, but let's say, for example, just for the sake of our exercise, you set that aside for a moment, and you think about any and everything, any blessing of whatever stripe that you would like for God to give you. Okay? Just, just, I know for some of you, or you're such good people that it raises this deep reticence in you. Just trust me. And three minutes, write everything you can think of that's good that if you allowed yourself, you would pray God to give you. Okay, go. Don't censor yourself. Keep on going. Thirty seconds. Okay, let me draw your attention to a word up here on the board. The word resentment, as pointed out, is etymologically resentiment. So resentment is not simply being angry. Resentment is drawing up an old offense and feeling the anger again. Right? So resentment is, I remember that painful, difficult thing that happened, and I'm all of a sudden back in it again, just like I was back then. Resentment. Um, 
what I want to what I want to ask you to do is take take 60 seconds and you may not want to write this down because you got people around you but I want to take you I want 60 to 90 seconds and think through who are the people you resent okay who do you resent who when you think about things that have happened between you and them that it's just really hard for you Now here, here's let me ask you to do. Here's here's a very practical, simple exercise I want to ask you to try, and I, I steal this from the uh, Alcohol, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book. Um, this week, this afternoon, or maybe before you leave the room, get by yourself and write down the names that came to the top, and then take your list of stuff that you want God for you and put it in your bathroom so you'll see it when you're brushing your teeth in the morning and when you're brushing your teeth in the evening. And pray that list of stuff you would like God to give you for the people on your list. It's very, it's very hard to do, but it's very simple. And it's a very literal taking seriously what Jesus says. And just experiment with it. So I'm going to ask you for a commitment this time on the exercise. How many of you are willing to try this for the next two weeks? All right. We'll be interested to hear your, your results. Thank you so much. Have a good week.